about how you came home. And I wonder, I wonder, is was right? Did writing ever help you? You know, I didn't think it did for for quite a while. I told people that it didn't. That it wasn't cathartic because it, it and it wasn't cathartic at the time. You know, writing the poems. I write a poem, and then I still had pressure to the same pressures that led me to the pen in the first place were still there. Nice. You know, so my notebooks, fortunately, were still there where I could write. But now I can look back and I can see that. Um, Sergeant Turner is a, is a role, you know, and the person that I was as Sergeant Turner is too small of a space for any human being to live in. You know what I mean? It's like normally in our lives we, we have much larger roles, you know, we might be uh, a husband, you know, maybe a teacher for somebody else, and, and a friend, and then, you know, co-worker, you know, we have all these different various roles that compose our, all these fragments that compose our larger, altogether our larger self, you know? But when I was in Iraq, it was like I was Sergeant Turner. <laughs> and I had to be very much that guy. But the notebooks were a space where my imagination could sort of a larger, explore the larger sort of whole, you know? And uh, I could say things, because you can say things in poetry, and they have to be said that way. There's no other word for them. But then if I say that to most people I'm working with, you know, yeah, what the fuck's wrong with this guy? <laughs> you know, because uh, other people, that's just not their thing, you know? Some people aren't, you know, they're not storytellers, or they don't, you know, poetry, that kind of language, or that way of looking at the world and talking about the world just doesn't, you know... So I'll talk to them in a different way, you know? I'll talk to them about bow hunting or whatever, you know what I mean? And talk about the football game. I like football, so I'll talk about football. Cool. But, but then there's the other things I've got to express because it's boiling around inside of me. And so those notebooks and the poems, I, I can see now, were very a very healthy, useful process for me, but I didn't know it at the time. You know, a lot of times we talk, and this is the prevailing narrative now, um, in America for sure, among writers, the writing that's coming out. And I, I see it somewhat over here, but I know the scene well enough to say it as a generality. But um, you can see the narratives of the war being, that are being carried, is being carried home by the soldier, you know, the war that comes home to the home front, you know. But at the same time, I think a lot, part of us that were, that were there were, we are like a, part of us died there. It was like a ghost. And it's still wandering, haunting that sort of landscape that's a static landscape for the most part. Occasionally interrupted by like news of change that takes place. Like ISIS, for example, coming down. So now like the ghost is starting to turn around to figure out what is it like to be there with ISIS now? How does that relate to... What is it that he, he was doing, I was a part of, and now ISIS is connected to him. Trying to understand that, you know. Um, so that's why the book has this sort of doubling effect, you know, where there is a Sergeant Turner, a dead Sergeant Turner, and there's me, you know. Um, and I, I'm still trying to figure that I, I think not enough people think about it in those terms, where it's like also the other direction. Sort of like we think about the, the memories that we have inside of us, but really it's not just the war here, but it's us still left in the war and not able to bring them. So I guess I'm trying to find a way to, um, to like, how do I live, and maybe to make this something that's more comprehensible, um, how do I live with the experiences and memories that I have, and how do I integrate that experience into the rest of my life so I can be healthier and be happy, you know, I'd like to be happy for the rest of my life and do useful, good things, you know, and how can I be a part of that with this baggage that I carry? How? You know? I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. You know. <laughs> could I ask in a slight? I mean, could I ask about love? And um, there is this extraordinary scene at, at the end of the memoir of you back in Iraq, and suddenly your yeah. wife is there walking through a 
It seems to be a sort of a mission. We're about to do a raid, and and uh, I was one of the demo guys in my platoon, so I, I would go up and put the demo. I remember, like for example, in this scene, there was a specific moment where me and Jakowski walked up to a gate, and we uh, we put some demolition uh, charge, explosive charge on the, and we unspooled the, the wire, went back, we were about to blow the gate. And um, and in the scene, she walks down the street somehow. She disappears and walks down in the street. In pajamas. Right, right. And... Um, and she comes up to all the you know different soldiers here. She's approaching me, and then she comes up and takes the detonator out of my hand and gives it to my squad leader, and then sort of walks me out of the war. That's my weird way of thanking my wife for helping me come home. And none of this seems to phase Elise. She just keeps walking toward me, nodding a faintly visible greeting to Bosch and Fiorillo, the Sergeant Z, and the follow-on assault team, to all who have taken a knee and listened for the countdown. I've taken a knee beside Jax, my squad leader, who whispers the countdown to the blast over the radio. When he gets to four, Elise kneels in front of me, smiling. And none of it makes any sense to me. The war, the detonator in my hand, my wife with a series of hearts embroidered on her thigh. The numbers called, called out over the radio, the city of Mosul. She reaches out to unfurl my fingers gently from around the detonator, which she takes from my palm and hands to Sergeant Bruzik, who nods and doesn't say a word. She helps me in my feet and holds my hand as we quietly step away from the squad kneeling beside the wall to the target house. Just come with me, she says. This way. There is a challenge for the writer coming back. What do you write about if war is your subject? And there are, in, in your second book, there are lovely poems about that. Imagining space, imagining yeah. um, your past. They weren't there originally. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they weren't there. There was. Um, I sent them off to my editor, who was uh, no longer at Alstom. She was transitioning out actually, and was handing over the press. And um, so, but she's still my go-to first-person writer. So I sent stuff to her, and they were all what I would call it war poems, you know. And then she came back with a very simple question, which was, "Where are you now?" Yeah. And then I, I gutted about forty percent of the book or so, and then rewrote, wrote these new poems and. And then childhood poems came in, and, and other poems. And then I realized that, and it was interesting, because I put some poems next to There's one about a whale that uh, was blown up on the beach, right? And you see that in a different collection, if it was another one. You might not see war. It might be more like religious or spiritual or something, you know? But set among these war poems, suddenly it takes on different con a different conversation, you know? And it plays differently in that setting among those other poems. And it's as if I could learn through that poem in that setting or in that juxtaposition, something about war in my childhood that I was learning, you know? So, Is it impossible um, in that way for you to see uh, to see beyond the idea of being a war poet? I mean, that's how you're tagged. Yeah, and, and I sure hope so. There were seven books before, yeah. and they weren't all about war, you know? Some, one about love, one intimacy, one about a failed marriage, one about uh, work, one, one about invention. Labor is something I'm very interested in. So I'm working on some stuff now that's... I think very different. I just hope. Is it, uh, is it self-consciously not about? Um, um, or can you? Is it that thing you can never leave it? Behind? I think it'll be a coloring, you know, regardless. And I might. I'll probably have some blinders where I don't see sure. some of the things that, that that others will see, you know, the yeah, and connections. You know, the, it's interesting because a poem finishes in the reader. You know, it's like when I read a poem, I help in the construction of somebody else's poem when they give it to me. You know, I'm part of the process of making it, and I bring not only each of the words have to be reinvented. I mean, this gets a little bit to like Descartes or something, you know, with <laughs> meditation and, what, you know, the, um, the idea of looking at a table and, you know, if you and I are sitting across from a table and we look at it, like I can't see 
there's a table between us right now, a very short one, and I can't see the legs, the leg of a table on the far side, but I think you can, yeah. right? I'm assuming it's there. And, and we might use the word table, but this is low one, and there's another table outside. But we still use these five letters to, and it's an approximation that we share, we agree upon, you know. The, but I've got a whole, cat, a whole warehouse of tables in my mind that make up the word table that from my entire life, and you do too. And we come together with these two warehouses, but yeah, we'll we'll agree on this one. And we string them together in this little sentence, of, sentence after sentence, and create a poem with them that creates this sort of very loose approximation of something. And that and, brings, and us, then, together. It brings and, us together. Yeah, and then we give that to hand it off to a reader or a listener, and then they reconstruct it in their mind, or they, they use those materials to construct a moment. I don't think that's George Bush. I don't think that's George Bush. It's I not Descartes, sadly. I would like it to be Descartes. Like if Descartes was on the phone, that would be, that'd be um, wonderful. If you had a telephone, though, to go to the dead. I ring, I ring the phone. <laughs> Imagining what it's like to be a, a, a bomb maker, or um, mm. you're, ima- you're imagining, quote unquote, your enemy, but w- and perhaps empathising, mm. or imagining the people trying to kill you. But was that again part of a desire to understand? And you know, is this a, is this it's a process? You know, I mean, because I, I, I would, I don't know, but it seems like a, I would think most most people in uniform that serve beside me would think that too. I've got to ask them. I have to ask some of them. But it's like I, I wondered, like about the people who tried to kill us, the ones who actually pulled triggers or, or fired off things or set the bomb. I wondered about their lives. Like, what what made them decide that they wanted to try to kill one of us or me? Like, there was, there were at least one, there was one moment described in the book where the guy fired an RPG across the circle while I was, and he was shooting at me. There was nobody else in the vehicle. So he had to have seen me, and he saw the explosion. He saw me fall in the vehicle, and... And does he now wonder about? Am I one of the one of the ghosts that he carries in his head? Because he might not know that I survived. He might have think he killed me, you know. And how does how does he live with that? And would he be would he be happy if he found out that he hadn't killed me? You know, I mean, there's so many different permutations of my thinking process was, but I wondered about the people who um, and what led them to it. You know, the um, many of them were say 20 years old, but in 2003. If you were 20 years old, it's 93, 83, right? So in 1991, you're seven, eight years old, right? And your dad or your uncle or both of them are down in the southern border of Kuwait, part of the army. Maybe they hate this guy, Saddam. He thinks he's a bastard. But they're in the army. That's their job, you know? And uh, so buck sergeants like me or something. And they're down there in the trenches there. And then a huge bulldozer, instead of storming the trenches, they had these massive bulldozers at some points that just... Because it's sand. And they just pushed the sand over and buried him alive inside the trench and just drove right over him, you know? And they haven't been repatriated. That skeleton is somewhere down there in the sand, you know? Maybe that's the reason. That's not a... I could understand that reason for shooting. There's a guy with the same flag on his shoulder. You know? Why wouldn't he shoot me? Yeah. You know? I don't know. You know what I mean? I mean, so... And then you can go from there for... There's so many reasons that are possible. And I, I don't know any of them, for sure. You know what I mean? So this part of my thinking process is like, why does this guy want to, you know, why would he take a shot at me? There's a poem called The Discotheque, and, and, and again, you revisit right. it, but the, having to face things, you know, the, this extraordinary box which seemed to have, which seems to be where 
that there was some form of torture or um, right. going on, having to face these sort of darkest areas and, and your own relationship to it. Are you complicit? Where, where do you stand? And where do the people back home stand? The poet Dave Smith, I, I got to meet him when I was in college. He stopped here. We had a conference and, and the word complicit and complicity was something he tried to share with me because he was, it was a poem I'd written about, um, well, it doesn't matter what I'd written about. There was a poem I'd written and it, it was obviously looking from one character towards another and sort of seeing the issues in the other. And he said, and he tried to turn it on his head for me and said, you know, if you can find the, you find troubled water within yourself and share it with other people. And if, if it finds a home in them, then there's a chance where, you know, what happens from there? There might be a chance where people could recognize some problem and be able to start to address it, you know. Um, and I, I think it's very important with torture if, if somehow that troubled water can find its home in people like back home in America, uh, find its home in, in more people where they might consider and think about it and, be, and really, really have to maybe come to some kind of agreement on, you know, that, that for change so that these things don't continue to happen. Guantanamo still exists. There are people still there, you know, uh, for example, you know. And you don't have to go in a wartime setting. There's... There are people in prison, and you know. I mean, it, it, this. I don't want to stretch the conversation because there's so much to it. It's a, mm. we could talk for days just on that, you know. But, but I, that's one. One of my hopes is that um, is that it might find a home in people in a way that that troubles them in their own life, and makes them do something, because people aren't doing anything. I go to college campuses across America, and it's quiet. They're just comfortable, you know. Or they're and also a lot of them are just buried in debt. And they're concentrated, and their 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 lives are crushed. They they're, they're so busy, they're exhausted, and they. I, but what I'm troubled by is, yeah, I remember I was in college in the mid '90s, and and there wasn't a, there were there's always shit going on all over the world that's got to be addressed. I mean, there's always stuff, you know. But I saw far there. It was a relatively you could kind of at that time I felt like in California I could kind of address myself, and there were issues that need to be addressed. But um, there was still a very active political atmosphere mm. on the campus. And you go back there now, it was quiet. There's nothing going on, you know. You and think? yet there's wars going on, entire wars. And, it, you know, they have soldiers in the field, and, and nobody's even really talking about it. I think part of it is because it's so long, very long wars. And after a while, very quickly in the war, you can see the news channels turned off. And the, mm. the, the journalist's narrative, you know, if you don't change the narrative, people are going to turn the channel because... Okay, I got that, man, but, you know, um, so they're going to want to find out new things about the world and feed their curiosity about the world. And, um, so the, if there wasn't, that's why they went to Mosul at one point, because the news story had been in Baghdad, and there's a news story up here. They go up there. But after a while, people get burned out on it. I've heard, my family has heard what I think about the war. I've heard what they think about it. My friends, the same. At some point, we're sort of tapped out. But the cool thing about art is it often goes into moments and people's, their stories and lives. And unlike the numbers and and political sort of larger ramifications of there, there might be a roadside bomb as goes off in a, in a in a journalist narrative. Oftentimes, it's not always true, but for the most part, there's a sort of distance that's applied, and then there's a number: five people killed, thirty-seven wounded. But in the poem, it isn't five people killed. You know, there, I actually do have a poem where it does numbers, but I do that on purpose because of that. But for the most part, we want to know. Who are those people? Yeah. And we want, we have to fall in love with them. And then, because then if we fall in love with a person, even with one note in a poem, 
or one phrase, then when we then we will feel their loss, and then give a shit about them, you know. But if there's a narrative that you see in the news, oh, there was a bomb in Karbala, there was a bomb in such and such these foreign exotic cities we've never been to, maybe never go to, certain number of people killed, and and you hear that over and over and over for a series of years, we just get calloused and numb. I mean, and the number five is what is that? I mean, just a scratch and a symbol. You know, it's not a life. <laughs> How many people have died in the Iraq War? And like, what does it say about a country? I've asked this question oftentimes, but like, what does it say about a country that can bury so many people and cover them over the dirt and take the last breath of their lives and then know nothing about them? I, it's astounding. I mean, that's. I mean, there's an obscene wealth there, and I really mean it. In, the worst way when I say that, <laughs> you know, I mean that's not wealth, but that, there's this kind of deep sickness of, of a culture that can wage war and not even pay attention to it. Is that what you mean uh, when you talk about returning home and America not being big enough to contain the war? That to, to, I mean, to some extent, we're talking about the pain of the returning soldiers we talked about earlier. And but is that what you also meant? And then it says it says, uh, uh, and maybe it doesn't even want to. Yeah. yeah. And is that is this? Yeah. This is, is partially why I share the book. I, I want people to give a shit and to care because cause the war is not over and the historians are wrong. And we have decades of work ahead of us just with, say, Iraq, you know. And not even including the war, the fighting that's going on there now. I'm just saying, if that wasn't taking place, psychologists and, you know, there's so much work to do. Sweden's taken more refugees from Iraq. And there's one town there, I went there, south of Södertälje. And the mayor went to our Congress. This is why I went to the, the town. They went to the American Congress and said, you know, hey, I've, this town of 60,000 has ballooned out to 72. 12,000 refugees in the one town, right, which is more than the entire country of America had taken it. And then he went home empty-handed. He was saying, hey, can you help me out? And he went home empty-handed, you know. Thanks for coming. Nice visit. You know? And, uh, yeah, so my, my country, I'm just, cause I, and I share it first at home, you know, it's just like, what are we doing about, you know, the, the work, the war is not finished, it's not over. And again, there are other problems. I think when we're walking up, we were talking about environmental problems, and, you know, there's so much to attend to, but um, I, I hate the idea that uh, right now, I know this is happening, like in Afghanistan, there are historians furiously finishing. They've already got the contract. They sent out their book proposals. They're probably wondering about the cover of their book, and they're trying to furiously get the last copy edits and stuff done for that, that book that's going to seal the... The, the history of Afghanistan and they'll be the first one to get it out there, you know. Because it's done, right? The troops are coming back home and it's over. Does that mean you're a political writer? I don't know how you couldn't be, you know. I don't know how a writer could not. I don't understand a non-political writer or something. Although there are people who don't trouble the water, you know with their work, or, or are troubled by the water in their work, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I, th I think there could be a lot more trouble into the water, you know. And do you see any, I mean, we're coming to the end of Obama's presidency, you know, it doesn't feel, in a way, you know, the troops have notionally left, but um, do you see any light in the horizon? For, I mean, in, in some ways, what we just uh, talked about suggests... I don't know, you know, I, it's going to be very hard, like, if you're an Iraqi citizen, um, you know, fighting is taking place now, or, you know, there's the, the country, there's people fleeing, 500,000, 600, I don't know what the number is, fleeing from Mosul itself. Um, and then, all, you know, going back to 2003, 
Um, and then there was a, I guess, what you call a short break, but there were the years of sanction. They, back here, they're called uh, sanctions, whatever. But when you have jets flying over its occupation, it's sometimes blowing stuff up. It's kind of like war. There's a low-level conflict there, right? <laughs> People blow stuff up. That kind of seems like a war, you know. And then, but that goes back to, you know, the first Gulf War. And then there's just, I mean, right before that was the war with Iran. A million people or so died, I think. How many people alive there in the country have lived when there isn't war? I went back to Baghdad in 2012, I think it was, um, not as a soldier. And so I'm walking through, meeting people. And I, I remember talking to some kids um, at the University of Baghdad, right? And we're sitting on the campus at this table. And I asked them some, and, and I had the same conversation with a couple of guys that it were had been students, but then they sort of just finished because they weren't going to get jobs. I think they'd finished, I'm not sure exactly, but they didn't have a job and they weren't students yet. They're in between somewhere. Um, and we were sitting in a, we were smoking a hookah in this one coffee shop kind of thing. And um, in both cases, I heard a similar thing. I said, you know, they were, at one point they were talking about they're angry at some of the older ones there in Iraq. Because they were like, you know, they got a childhood. Like, I never got a childhood. Mm-hmm. You know? You can't change that. You know? What was it like when you went back? Did you encounter sort of dead Sergeant Turner again? Okay. No, but I did. Uh, well, maybe in some ways, because I remember walking down um, uh, Al Mutanabi Street in back. It's a famous old bookseller street. Um, Mutanabi is a famous poet from way back in the day, and all and the streets named after him. And I was walking down the street, and I was fascinated, but I was, you know, was tense because I felt vulnerable. Um, and I, I was hoping I would look Kurdish, but I do not look Kurdish, you know, so it really stuck out like a sore thumb, you know, obviously foreigner, you know, and I'm walking. And to compound that fact, I, I found that I slipped into my old role, which is there's a way of walking down a street, you know, you just walk down the street, but there's a way of doing like a kind of slow pirouette where you check everything around you from behind to see what's behind you. And it's the way soldiers spin on a street as they're walking down. They do it every, every you know, few feet or so, and they just keep making sure they see what's behind them, you know. And when I did that, I remember thinking, it's, you know, I was suddenly aware that I'd just done it, and I know that people there know how soldiers walk down the street. And that, you know... It doesn't leave. I realized, I, I realized that there was nothing I was going to be able to do to protect myself, necessarily. So I had to, like, stop going into that mode. I had to be, you know, me now in a more vulnerable way, you know, because it was still dangerous, you know. There was a guy with me who had a pistol under his jacket. Right. But that's it. Like that's not gonna help me if some guy starts shooting at us. <laughs> you don't know too much. You know what I mean? And I know he was like a black belt in taekwondo or something. That's not gonna help me either, really. And how much does he really care about my life? Is this gonna work out for people? Those who survived. You know, is life gonna get better? It looked pretty grim to me when I was there. It looked like everything was on hold, and, and it looked like the Baghdad was a series of enclaves and, and checkpoints in their lives. Checkpoints like being on, on pause or something. Like they're not sure which way. The, that's what it seemed to me. I did, and the story was from National Geographic, and the photography was very much more positive. So it felt like, like I had to water down what I was saying to make it. I remember one point they'd come back and say, well, did you see anything positive, you know? You put that in there, you know, it's kind of thing. And, you, and, you... Uh, and I, I tried to like think, okay, well, how's what did I see? I still I feel like it got watered down, you know, from what I saw. 
And then I took a, a lot of the photos that I taken on my own, you know, hack amateur photos and stuff. And I did a, a blog piece for the New York Times, and I felt like I was able to say more with those photos than than I could with the, the other piece. Yeah. Let's go get some lunch, man. Yes, yes. Okay. So, we'll stop talking now. We'll talk about football or something. Else. <laughs>